Welcome to the Editing Lawyer Podcast. I'm Benjamin Scott Wright, an attorney in Wisconsin, and I'm talking to other lawyers and professionals about writing, editing, and publishing. Listen in. This week I'm talking to Mike Whalen about the book he's writing and how he's writing it. A brief warning, though, before we get into it. This is what I call a minimally viable podcast. It will get better over time. Also, I ran into some technical difficulties and Mike helpfully took over recording. That's why he sounds like the host on this episode. I fixed the issue for future recordings. So, you've been warned. Now on to the conversation. Mike, thanks for talking with me today. Uh, How would you like to introduce yourself? What's your elevator pitch? My elevator pitch, I like long moonlit walks on the beach and quiet dinners, and I'm really disturbed by the lack of Firefly episodes in my life. Uh, Beyond that, I am the host of the Lawyer Forward Conference, which occurs every January in Austin, Texas. I also write and am working on a book now, and I do consulting and uh, some content work for lawyers. I've practiced in Texas as a family lawyer, and that practice is more or less shut down, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. So mostly lawyer forward stuff, mostly just helping lawyers uh, be a little more human and awesome. Oh, great. Uh, That sounds great. Um, So you said you're writing a book. Uh, Tell me about it. I am. So, and I think you and I have talked about this before. I generally write when I'm sort of annoyed and there, there have been issues that have bothered me about legal practice and especially the way we talk to solos about their practices. Uh, I worked in logistics for about 10 years before law school, and then I went to law school at 30 with four kids in tow, which I would not recommend to anyone. And uh, when I was in school and came out, everybody assumed that they were going to get that big firm job, right? I went to the University of Texas, which at the time I think was ranked like 13th or 14th or something. And Texas is a huge market, so everybody was getting, here's a job for you, here's a job for you. It was They were handing out like candy. But I went in 2008, and so that was the last group that really you know had a job for a pretty long period of time. And so our group, it was pretty clear early on that we weren't going to have those jobs. So I started to talk to these kids about running their own practices, about building their own businesses. And I'd bring practicing attorneys in, and we'd talk about, those things and uh, none, uh, nobody would ever show up uh, out of a school with like <laughs> 1,200 kids. Most of our meetings would have like five people there and two of them were probably my parents. But uh, everybody just thought that they were going to have that, that cool job. But then, you know, they all graduated and then they all started calling me because they couldn't find something to do and didn't know a healthy way to be a solo. And, and so basically this book is me making arguments about what I think is an economically viable and a personally satisfying way to be a solo. Yeah, that sounds, uh, sounds very interesting. So what is it? What's your, what's your argument? What's the economically viable way to be a solo? The whole secret. I'm gonna. I'm, I will uh, dwindle it down into three arguments. Now, I will say this takes a whole book to flesh out, and maybe even more than that. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But uh, the three main ideas in the book are one: uh, financial capital is not really a business building technique that's available to us. If you read 
Thomas Piketty's book, Capital, it's not really available to any except for a few really rich white guys. But, but financial capital is hard to come by. Social capital is very available, and it is the way to build a business and leverage uh, by leveraging social capital. So, uh, and we can talk about what exactly that means. I refer to it as the Star Trek economy in the book. So, uh, make a social capital play. The argument number two is that we're told that we're all entrepreneurs as sole practitioners, but that's not really true unless it means everybody who's starting a business. Entrepreneurialism has to do with risk and growth and selling, creating a new market. That's not true of most lawyers. Uh, the, we're also told, though, that we're all experts, which is also not true. Uh, again, expertise, it's, it, it, it's a different business model. It implies really being really elite, really sought after. You can charge whatever you want to charge because people need you specifically. You're irreplaceable. And I think that trying to mix those two models uh, because access and expertise are not compatible, mixing those two models is really hurting a lot of solo lawyers. So I say pick one. And then the third argument is then you have to connect. This is a legal supply chain argument, I call it, coming from my logistics background. Once you make your social capital play, once you pick your business type, then for the legal industry to work, we have to connect because clients do want both access and expertise. The fact that one business can't deliver both of those very well doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be delivered. And the way to do that is through collaboration. So, so those are kind of the big arguments in the book. Uh, so, let's, so what is social capital? What do you mean by that? So generally, when when you're talking about capital, it, it's it's what you leverage to then get you something desired. And the reason I make the analogy to Star Trek in the book is in Star Trek, there's no money. If for all you nerds out there, in the future, other than you know races that they run into when they fly out in space, there, there's no money. And so the way those people mm -hmm. uh, build their profile in the community is through prestige. It's through noble acts. So, you know, victories in war or art or awards or whatever, they're all social endeavors. And so in Star Trek, if you want to climb up the ranks, as it were, it's all a prestige play. My um, argument for lawyers is similar. It's that today the tools are available and the social connectedness is available for us to be true social leaders, to to connect and to to build that prestige. And then the money follows. It's There's nothing, as I've known a bunch of lawyers, both wealthy and very not wealthy, I've realized that money as a starting point is, it, it's it's fraught with issues that because money does not necessarily lead to connection. Money does not necessarily lead to human relationships and to deep experiences. But if you flip that around and you have those deep human relationships and that connection, then you, the money seems to solve itself. And um, so that's what the social capital play is in the book. Yeah. Can you maybe give me an, an example? I'm, I'm wondering what it looks like, what you're thinking of when you're saying, you know, the focus on the money is the wrong way to go. Would picking a particular practice area like elder law because it's growing and, and there's a lot of money, right. you know, potential to be had there. Is that what you're talking about? You know, making the decision based on that? 
Sure, maybe. The, the example that I give a lot, there are many examples outside of law, but the example I give a lot in law is Alan Dershowitz, and I know he's gone a little off the deep end, but I, I remember sitting at my dad's house, and I tell this story in the book. My dad said to me, I, I told it, this was several years ago, I said, you know, I may not want to continue practicing. I'm worried about the way we practice in the future of law and, and the ability to charge more and stuff. And my dad says, well, you've been doing this for a little while, uh, like that Alan Dershowitz guy. Why can't you just charge a lot like he can? And I was like, Dad, you really think the reason Alan Dershowitz can charge so much is because he's been doing it for a long time? I said, Alan Dershowitz publishes. He writes. He speaks. He teaches. He goes out that he has an expert business to the point that he's just elite. You have to have him. Uh, because of what he's done to mass, to use mass media to build his profile and that, that sense of his expertise. There's a great book on this called The Business of Expertise by David Baker uh, that I find myself recommending a lot, but that's, that's not doing the grind, right? That's not churning cases. That's building social capital through demonstrated expertise. On the flip side, when I talk about the uh, when I talk about the entrepreneurial type lawyer, the solopreneur lawyer, they're similarly building social capital, but they do it in a slightly different way. The way those people do it is through uh, make them love you when they don't need you kind of approach. Meaning, those people are serving an audience. They're talking to them. They're attracting them. They're entertaining them, teaching them, to the point that. People want to be around them even when they don't need them because when they do need them, they're going to call them every time. So the example I give with that a lot is Patrick Pallas. Uh, I don't know if you know Patrick, but he's in uh, with, in uh, Washington State. He does workers' comp law, and he is an audience-focused solopreneur. And so what he does is he goes out into the world just being every. I mean, the guy is everywhere. He speaks, he teaches, he guides, he writes, uh, he helps other firms, and he builds social capital to a point that when people need him, they know exactly where to find him. Um, in business, we have a lot of examples of that. You know, Amazon, obviously, is the easy example. They get you in their world, and then they just sell you stuff. One after the other, they're selling you things. So just a different business model, but uh, one that you know, both of those models, I think what we end up doing is hybridizing them so that we're not really good at either of them. So, I mean, you've talked about how social capital is, you know, your argument is that social capital is the the place to be, essentially. This is how lawyers really need to be building their businesses. Um, and you talk about the Star Trek economy, but I guess maybe the first question is, you know, are we really in that Star Trek economy, right? We still have money. Um, maybe this looks more like, you know, Deep Space Nine than it does the next generation. Uh, all I care about is that now we're having a Deep Space Nine conversation. Um, <laughs> so interestingly, in the book, I actually make a Deep Space Nine reference. So for those of you non-nerds, uh, Deep Space Nine is a, it, it's a space station, a space station out on the edge of known space against a, uh, next to a wormhole. And on Deep Space Nine, there are different races that come from different uh, planets and different uh, uh, different universes. And there are, on this uh, space station, there's a human kid named Jake and his Ferengi buddy named Nog. And Ferengis, they have money. And in fact, for Ferengis, money is a religious experience. It is, for them, they navigate what they call the great material continuum. And the idea is that there are some who have too much, 
and some who don't have enough, and they just have to connect to each other. So in the book, I give the example of, uh, in one episode, Jake wants to give his dad a baseball card, a Willie Mays rookie baseball card. And there's a guy selling it. He has it. But he doesn't want money from Jake. What he wants is some parts to make something. doesn't matter. The point is, Nog says to him, well, how much do you have to pay? And Jake says, I don't have any money. I'm human. Well, Nog says, it's not my fault that you have this self-improvement theory. We've got to navigate the great material continuum. And in that episode, what you see is they go from what they have, which at the time was some money, or, or, I'm sorry, was some labor and some connection. So they went, they go and do some work for the chief who then connects them to something that they need to give to his wife. And then that connects them to something. And they go from item to item, almost in a bartering way to get from where they were, the resources that they had, down to this baseball card. And I give that example to say, even in a world with money, it was still a connection of what people needed, right? It was still a human connection. Money is just a stand-in. Uh, if if you read the book Debt, it's actually, it was invented to track debt, but theoretically, it's just a stand-in for value. We use money to express some kind of value that you provided one to another. Well, that exchange from a value from one to another is social. It's fundamentally social. It's not math. It's I gave you something you wanted and you gave me something I wanted that stood in for something that somebody else gave you. It's a connection across this material continuum. And so whether we have money or not, I feel like lawyers especially, because frankly we're mostly bad at math, we use money as some kind of ultimate good, as that's the thing that's going to measure the worth of a business. But that's not what money does. Money represents value. Money creates value if you have Thomas Piketty's capital kind of money, if you're a super rich white guy and you can go invest that. And frankly, if you're that person, you shouldn't do law. This is a terrible investment. Um, you should go figure out how to put that money into assets that will return way more than law will. But if what you want to do is solve interesting problems and and help people get from harm to good, these are social connections. And whether wherever the money comes from, ultimately, you're connecting to solve social harms, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, do you think the kind of legal culture right now is a little too focused on that material success? You mentioned, you know, Patrick Pallas. Well, isn't one reason why we admire Patrick Pallas so much is that he's successful? I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I have no idea how successful Patrick Pallas' firm <laughs> is. Uh, I know I like him, and I know that I talk to him a lot because he's a really smart guy. I I think it may be, and this is something that, that bugs me a lot, actually, is that we what we do in society is we take the anomalies, the statistical anomalies, and say, go and do thou likewise, right? So I mm -hmm. went to a conference uh, where Mitch Jackson, who's on social media, was trying to convince these lawyers to do social media. And he gave the example of a band. The band's name slips my mind right now. Um, but he, he gave the example of this band that gave away all of their stuff for free on Spotify. And by giving their stuff away for free on Spotify for all these years, they got really big, and they ended up doing uh, opening up for John Mayer, right? And so he gives this as an example to say, look, guys, this is what can happen if you're on social media. 
any good sports scout knows that you don't justify drafting somebody based on their comp to a statistical anomaly. If you're looking at somebody and you say, oh, they're the next Steph Curry, Steph Curry is a freak. He should not be able to do what he does. So for somebody to be the next Steph Curry is probably a disaster. With lawyers, we tend to take the outliers and then turn to the group and say, why can't you do this? What's wrong with you? Some of those successes are flashes in the pan, and that's not what we're looking to do. What we are, what we are trying to do is the most predictably successful path to, to get to the end that we want. Money is part of that end, but that's, that's not really the end for most of us. So for us to simply look at somebody and say, oh, they have a lot of money, therefore I need to do like them. One, they could be a statistical anomaly, and you're just setting yourself up for grief. And two, money is not really what their target probably was, and it certainly should not be what your target is. So using that as the only filter doesn't make a lot of sense. Frankly, I like using the Patrick Palace example because the dude is just happy. He's a nice guy. He does yoga. He makes wine. He's just a chill dude. I, I like his example not because he's wealthy, because I really don't know, but because he's living a life of wealth. That's different to me. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I want to briefly cover your, your other two points, and then we got to talk about uh, what motivated you to sure. actually write this thing, talk right. about the process of writing it, which is what we're really trying to get at here. But I do want to talk about the subject of your book because it's so fascinating. Sure. Um, you know, your your second point is that we need to, you know, solos, lawyers need to choose between uh, an access business and an expert expertise business. Right. So what I'd like to ask you is, you know, what that means, what the difference is, and how in the world is a lawyer supposed to choose between those two? Right. So broadly speaking, I always give the example of text-to-lawyer because I think this is a, a great example. So text-to-lawyer is a new uh, app, a new program. Uh, I know Dan Lear, my friend Dan Lear, represents, um, and it, it's fine. I don't have any particular problems with it. But it is by definition, what you do is you, you text a question and a lawyer for some small fee for some small amount of time will then give you an answer. Obviously, that answer that you are receiving back is not expertise. Now, I say obviously, that may not be obvious. A lot of the problem with the way that we talk about these issues is that we, we don't agree on definitions. We have a lot of problem understanding the definitions. And is dorky as it is, every legal contract starts with definitions of pretty simple words. So all that said, when, when I'm talking about expertise, what I mean is applied wisdom. So we're talking about wisdom derived from repeated case studies. It's pattern recognition. It's seeing enough case studies in a repeated way that you can isolate what's important and what to understand uh, and then apply it to a specific situation. So uh, for lawyers, this is well understood. If you uh, though not often well implemented. If you go to the book uh, Business of Expertise that I mentioned before, he, he gets into this a lot. But it is that's the exercise. The person who is spending the time being the expert is spending a lot of time understanding patterns and coming up with insights from those patterns. That's that expert work. So whether you pick that business model or not largely depends on what you'd rather be doing during the day. Um, the other business type of that access-focused business, take the other side of that text-to-lawyer. Text-to-lawyer is a great product. Uh, it's great for somebody wants a quick answer. 
to a quick question. Now, what they are receiving is knowledge. It is not expertise. And quite frankly, that person may be better off going and doing a Google search. But if it gives them the feeling that they have a lawyer behind it, fine. Uh, but, but that's a knowledge-based business. And the point in any access business is to take knowledge to human beings. It is what I call a solutions engine. The purpose of Patrick's business, what Patrick does on a day-to-day -day basis is not read deep tomes about workers' comp. He sits and, and comes up with ideas for how to deliver solutions to people with certain problems. So to put it simply, if you're trying to pick which one you want to be, the question I always ask is, if you had a week that you could do anything, would you rather spend that week writing a book or managing people? And if you'd rather spend that week writing a book, which surprisingly few lawyers say they want to write a book, but if you do, that's your expert business. That's what you want to do is you want to build that deep expertise business. If what you want to do is manage a team and you want to figure out how to scale out solutions and, and build these, uh, these scalable solutions, you're more the entrepreneurial type and you should build that kind of business. Uh, so in general, if you're trying to pick between the two, Ask yourself, book or management, which would you rather do? That's a great question. Well, I know my answer, and that's definitely writing a book. <laughs> well, I then I guess we have the answer, answer for you. <laughs> yeah, we better get started working on that. You know, and I, and I should yeah. say, there, and I, I make this concession in the book, there will be other people in the legal marketplace that don't do one of these two things. And I have said, I've had people say to me many times, uh, not everybody is going to fit into one of those two categories. I get that. I'm not questioning that at all. I would question, do you want to have a solo business if you don't fit into one of those two categories? Because what ends up happening for the other people, people who are doing non-expert work and who don't have an audience, right? So you're neither of the two things that we just talked about. You don't do expert work. You're not connected to an audience. Those people have removed from them the two most valuable pieces of any transaction. By definition, they're going to then do low value work. And you're gonna get low value compensation for that. You're gonna have low value control. It, I am not saying that everyone needs to do this thing that I'm saying, one of these two business models, but I am saying that if you don't do one of them, you're moving with the herd and that has economic and personal disadvantages. Well, let's briefly cover your third point, which is I, I think you need to, once you've developed your either access or expertise business, you need to connect to other people to fill in the, the access or expertise that you lack. Uh, briefly, I guess, you know, how how do you envision that happening? Sure. Is that where I think you've mentioned a legal supply chain manager, right. you know, what, what's that about? Right. So the, the third point that I make in there is that, uh, uh, now I will say, Again, this is very different for the person running an expert business and the person running an access audience-focused business. For the person running the audience-focused business, they are they need what I call a legal supply chain manager, which is somebody that designs products, designs solutions. So if if Patrick comes, he uses a different term. I think they call her projects manager in his firm. Uh, this nerdy mm. legal supply chain manager is a term that literally no one but me and my mom is ever going to use. But anyway... So when Patrick comes up with a solution, he sees a problem, he's got customer feedback, he's heard repeatedly there's this thing. So Patrick and this projects manager, they sit down and they try to 
to brain out a solution. Well, then that person, they design, source, build, and deliver. Those are the four words that I use for a legal supply chain manager. Design has to do with, here's all the pieces that need to happen for a solution to be delivered that meets that person's need. Build has to do with quality control and making sure that as you build the product, whatever that is, or service, that it matches your expectations. Uh, source has to do with putting the right people in the right place to do each step along that chain that you described. And then deliver has to do with customer experience. So you wanna make sure that they're really excited about the experience because that just adds value and makes it so that they, they appreciate what they got. So that's what a legal supply chain manager does is that that is the first hire I would do if I would make if you want an audience focused business and their primary purpose is to create valuable products and to master delivering them in a way that people will want them. And then consumers, you know, there's a marketing function, like I said, with that experience thing, people come, right? When you design the amazing work, people come. On the flip side, with the expertise business, I always say, if you're gonna start an expertise business, your first hire should probably be a personal assistant. Uh, you should have somebody to fill out the kids' health forms and to book an airplane for you. And because for you, your time should be spent building and demonstrating and monetizing expertise. You should not be spending your time filling out forms. That's just not what your day should look like. So for the two different people, when we talk about filling in what they don't do, some of that is connection across the supply chain, right? So if I've got a case with a deep expert issue and I don't know how to do it, yes, I go connect to another lawyer. But most of that supply chain, when you design that, most of those pieces are probably not lawyers. Most of them, you know, they're gonna be tools, technology tools for some of them can fill in some of those gaps. Uh, a bunch of them are gonna be human beings, some of them inside your company and some of them outside your company. They could be services. It, a bunch of the stuff, frankly, you're gonna cut out. So one of the first things I tell lawyers when I go to their firm and they tell me life sucks and they're so busy and they can't get anything done, I'm like, do you do free consultations? And almost all of them do. Well, cut that stuff out, right? So this exercise of designing the work that you should be doing, much of it involves people and tools, and much of it involves viciously cutting out the things you should not be doing. So since we just had this great overview of what you're arguing, so where uh, do you see any gaps already, more stuff that you need to fill in, <laughs> more ideas to develop? What's your, what in terms of the ideas of the book, um, do you need to work on now? I'm starting to think it may be infinite. Um, I was actually listening to Jeff Goins's podcast this morning. If if you haven't uh, ever heard that one, he uh, he talks about writing a lot, and he said at some point you need to give yourself permission to write another book. Right, like you could sit and edit and perfect and go all the time, but at some point you just have to be okay with saying. I got to close this thing up and put it out into the world, knowing that some of it's going to be have some uh, blanks, but then write another book. So honestly, very early on, I realized that if I'm talking about building an expert business, it's fundamentally different than talking about building a legal supply chain access focused business. And so I just gave myself permission to write those two books later. Like as soon as I said, I'm going to make this a trilogy. Mm -hmm. It gave me permission to put the idea out. And something that I found as I went through this book, 
when I first did it, it felt like preaching. It was a lot of preaching, right? So I'm just, like I've been doing so far in this conversation, I'm just dropping ideas. I'm saying people should, and uh, you must, and we never, you know, I'm using these absolute terms. Mm-hmm. And it made for a really boring book, right? Uh, and so I put out to the world that I wanted to talk to people who were trying this, who fit one of the two models and where they thought it worked and where they thought it didn't. I found that I needed to add human stories. And so most of the effort, honestly, with my book after the first kind of framework was to add human stories to it. And the reason that I've done that, I found as I've operated Lawyer Forward and done these conferences, when you go to a conference, for example, you're only going to take one or two things. And really what you hope for that conference is that it will maintain your attention long enough for you to get those one or two things. So as I'm writing this book, the ideas are pretty solid and I could sit there and pick them apart all I want to, but really what I need is for people to sit with them. I need them to to hang out with the idea long enough that when they leave, they'll process it. And most of that processing happens through story, not through preaching. So the effort, the holes that I'm trying to fill in now are not the logic of the argument. The holes I'm filling in now are mostly adding human connections to it. And you're doing that through interviewing, talking to other people? That's right, and the occasional Star Trek reference. Um, but yes, I have right. <laughs> I have interviewed a lot of people and to kind of get their perspective. I It's tough because I don't want this to become just a tied-together bunch of interviews. I mean, there is essential argument, and quite frankly, a lot of the people that I've interviewed, they some of them don't necessarily agree with what I'm saying. Uh, frankly, it's very few. A lot of them are saying, holy crap, you've just put words to what I've been doing, right? Like some of it is just mm-hmm. that they get it because they've done it but didn't ever have a logical framework. And and frankly, that's that's part of one of the arguments in the book is that generation after generation, lawyers are so siloed that we're not making generational gains in knowledge and that we need to get better at that. And this model helps to do that. Um, but so what I'm getting a lot of times is people saying, I tried stuff and it just ended up working. What we don't seem to realize is that all that stuff has been tried before. It's been tried in other industries. It's been tried in other firms. So all I'm really having to do is bring the stories of people who have done it to the lawyer audience so that they'll sit with it long enough to process it. How are you finding those people and those stories or those connections you already had? How did you make them? Yeah, mostly the Twitter machine. Uh, I am not advising for anyone's Mm -hmm. mental health that they get on the Twitter machine. But, um, you know, I find that, just as an aside, the Twitter crowd, somebody made the distinction to me today. They said, you know, your Facebook crowd are lawyers and your Twitter crowd are business owners, some of them in legal businesses. And I had never really thought of it that way. the the Twitter crowd thinks uh, a little more academically, I think, and more sarcastically, which is helpful for me uh, because I speak on that wavelength. Twitter feels like a medium that was designed for me. Now, I've got a lot of good friends on Facebook and uh, a lot of people that I don't like as much, but the Twitter crowd is really good for me finding people who will brain this stuff out with me. I just don't think people pop on Twitter unless they want to sort through some deep issues, at least not the people I follow anyway. Well, let's uh, let's circle back a little bit and sure. talk about 
you know, why you're writing this book to begin with. What, you know, not just the ideas, but what got you to go from, uh, maybe I'll write a book, I have some ideas running around in my hand in my head to sitting down and actually getting started on it. Uh, honestly, a bit of a midlife crisis. Uh, I just turned 40, and so I'm, I may be having sort of a breakdown. If, if a Ferrari comes out of this, then I'll be fine with my midlife crisis. But, um, but you know, I actually, it, it happened because I had two books in my head. Uh, one was this. One was this idea of talking to lawyers. And the other was I, I had it in my head to build an estate planning practice. And any time I come up with an idea, I give it a book title because it helps me process the idea. And in this case, the book title was A Wealth of Impact. And the idea was I wanted to write as an expert. I didn't want to be an audience-focused business. I wanted to build an expert business. And I'm going to talk about the purpose of money uh, and especially generational money, money that passes through generations. And so... I wanted to talk about money in a way that says it's supposed to do more than pay the bills. It's supposed to have impact. And here's what that means. It was going to be more of a more of a philosophical look at why we accumulate money. And so I took these two books and suspended them both in my head for a moment and tried to figure out which one I would rather write. And specifically, I looked at which problem I would rather solve. When I ask my kids, I, I try not to ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I try to ask them, what kind of problems do you want to solve? Because being is very dangerous. I find this a lot with lawyers. We use this. We, we use the to be verb. We say, I am a lawyer. I don't do law. I am a lawyer. And that gets us so emotionally tied to a result and to an image and to this idea that we're not willing to experiment and play and try. Problems are actually much better with that because we can say this is the problem that we're trying to solve and I'll go at it however I can. Personally, when I looked at the two problems and I said inter intergenerational wealth transfers and more human lawyers, the more human lawyers was just a problem that interested me more. I, I just am more into it. So when I looked at it through the framework, not of what's going to make me more money or what's going to make my mom happier or what's going to make my kids say, dad's so smart or readers say, this guy's so smart. I looked at it through the problem. It just motivated me to go put the book together. That's a really great way of, of thinking about it and making that decision. That's that's a great way to make that decision to decide which book you want to write, but there's still the practical matter of uh, justifying spending time on it, finding the time to spend on it. How did you do that? Relatedly, no one is a writer, right? Uh, we mm -hmm. We say this phrase, we say, I am a writer. But really, that's for someone else to say. It's it's a way for other people to simply refer to you as something. So, um, you know, I, I may say the phrase, I am a writer, but that's only true if I write, right? It, at some point, a year from now, somebody's going to refer to me as a writer. The only difference between a year from now and a year ago is that I sat down and wrote. There are only habits. There is only character and what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So... When I realized that I need to stop defining my life by to-be verbs and just build a quality character that I like to hang out with, I realized that the person that I like, the person that I want to be, is somebody who writes every day. And so 
at some point, you know, I read Stephen King's book on writing, and he is very direct and often crass about the daily work and how you just need to get your butt in a seat and write it. Uh, similarly, uh, there's a book called The War of Art that is also very helpful if you are processing how to get past that resistance and how to get your work done. Uh, ultimately, I'm sure that this is going to be the worst book that I ever write, right? You know that your first book is going to be the worst book that you ever write, uh, unless you're the To Kill a Mockingbird lady. Th this is going to be the worst book that you ever write. <laughs> and you just got to get through it. The only way to write the second worst book that you ever write is to finish the first one first. And then you get to the second worst, and then you get to the third worst. And so I just had to discipline myself. And, mm -hmm. and we can talk about the specific systems I did to make sure that I, I do it. But largely, it was just realizing that I, there's no such thing as being a writer. There's only writing. That's why you split your first book into a into a trilogy too, right? So you can get the bad one out of the way first. Exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great strategy. So how did you get the idea for your book, and what are you hoping its impact is going to be? So largely, um, I teach my kids about something called the Elijah Principle, which I made up. There is nothing called the Elijah Principle. Hakeem Olajuwon was a basketball player for the Houston Rockets. Hakeem the Dream, he was known as. And he was a freak. The reason Hakeem, who was a giant, was so good was because he had the best footwork in the league. As a center, as a giant, he had amazing footwork. And the reason he had that amazing footwork was because he grew up in Africa playing soccer. He didn't play basketball. He played soccer. And then when he overlapped the interests of soccer and basketball, he became Hakeem Olajuwon. For me, and this, if you're ever thinking of writing a nonfiction book, uh, at my conference, some of the most popular sessions are blank and family law. So immigration and family law or real estate and family law. It's the and that allows analogies to be made that bring wisdom from two different substantive areas. So for this particular book, it came because I had a different career before this one. And as I face this industry and look at it and go, good grief, that is dumb. Why do we do it that way? Uh, I can look, the reason I think that's dumb is because I can look back at my previous experience and find a prevailing logic for why that business does it that way. And frankly, if I were to go work in logistics ever again, I would be taking my experience with law to overlap onto that business, right? The Akeem Olajuwon principle you know, implies that you can theoretically go either direction with it. But it's that overlap. It's the ability to analogize and recognize those patterns like we talked about is where applied wisdom comes from. So that's that's where it came from. As far as what I expect of it, uh, you know, I told my wife today that I may never sell a book. I may give a lot of books away. It may become uh, just a really thick business card. But if I set up a business behind it that rationalizes the creation of that thing, then then it's okay. Uh, some of it is just I need to get it out. But when I explain it to my wife, I have to have a really businessy sounding explanation so she could be like, "This makes sense to spend time on." But uh, but yeah, there, there there is a business following a book, and and we could certainly talk about that in general. What I tell people is that we look at marketing as an expense, but if you go read Joe Polizzi and Robert Rose's book, uh, Killing Marketing, marketing does not have to be an expense. And for 
both Patrick, who's a solutions engine, uh, or the expert lawyer who is creating and writing and speaking and teaching, like Alan Dershowitz, they're selling products beyond the legal service. They're building relationships and trust and expertise that they can sell in multiple ways. So similarly with this book, I'm doing the robust effort of making building strong opinions and arguing for them, but all of that is creating assets that I can use through the future, right? It's very asset asset focused. Right, and that can be a so you're you're building an asset for yourself for you know a solo lawyer who's who might actually read it, who might end up reading this book. What do you what do you hope that lawyer will take away from it? Stop it, right? <laughs> like stop, <laughs> stop doing what you're doing. I I think the thing that it drives me most crazy about this and what motivated me to write this book largely is people telling lawyers, you're an entrepreneur. Oh, and by the way, you're an expert, right? That drives me nuts because literally you a, a single person cannot do both. It's impossible. A business might theoretically be able to deliver both, though I don't think that's very economically reasonable to do it when you can just connect with people but a person can't do both and so I get very annoyed with lawyers being told if you don't know what SEO is then shame on you and then in the next sentence being told if you don't know how to capitalize derivative markets and write shareholder agreement then then you're a bad person right uh, they it, it's just too much. And so many of the solo attorneys that I see are miserable. I mean, there's there's data going both directions, frankly, on this. But the people that I run into, many of them are quite uncomfortable because they're trying to live both lives. And it just frustrate, frustrates me to the point that I want them to see you can pick one. And then hopefully, once you pick one, this is a springboard to get them to come to me to have more conversations about how to actually enact that, how to actually implement that business model that you choose. But step one is to choose, and that's what this book is about. You you said you get kind of you get mad, uh, and I think you've said elsewhere that uh, that's what really you write when you're mad. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about talk about that? How did you? I, I mean. Obviously, it takes more than a week or two to to write out a, a draft of an entire book. Do you stay bad that whole time? Do you kind of channel that anger? How does that help you write? <laughs> that is, uh, I was talking to my wife about this as well recently. Uh, she is a stay-at-home mom, and I never appreciated the emotional management that is required for a stay-at-home mom until I started writing a book, right? Because you feel like, I just cleaned this mess. What is happening, right? Like, so you have to be able to not curl up in a ball all the time and hide in the corner. When you're a writer, you go through an emotional roller coaster when, when you decide to put your brain on paper. Uh, and sometimes you feel really motivated. You really want to create something. And sometimes you feel like you just want to take a nap. And the two things I would say about that is, one always write no matter what your mood is because what you write might be a reflection of that mood and you may have needed that mood to come up with the thing that is necessary so in answer to your question no i don't always write angry uh i when i do i come up with some arguments and when i write 
excited, I'll come up with a different argument or a different tone that I might apply to that. And then the sum ends up being the best quality book. The other thing that I would say is write with your mood, not against it. Don't, don't try to get to the right frame of mind before you sit down and put stuff to paper because, again, you might, you might end up writing something that you didn't know you knew. Uh, there's that old cliche, I write to know what I know, right? Uh, there's a lot of stuff in your brain that you haven't processed, and it is in the writing that it comes out. And part of that is tied to your mood. It's tied to your, your state of mind when you sit down and do it. So engage with it. Always decide, no matter what your mood, I don't care if it's 30 minutes, sit down and write with that mood, with that place that you are, and just use it. You can edit later. Your editing later will go back and say, man, I must have been really off my rocker that day. Was I drunk when I wrote that? Uh, but then you mm -hmm. just edit it. But sometimes those sparks of awesome are going to come from a place that you didn't predict. So what are your plans for editing? Are you going to self-edit? Are you going to have help from somebody else? What are your thoughts on uh, the editing? And then I guess after that, you know, the publishing, what are your thoughts on that? There will be a lot of crying. Uh so <laughs> editing is honestly far more grueling than I thought it would be, and certainly more grueling than writing was. Uh, a lot of people talk about writer's block, but if honestly, if you just sit down and get your brain out, it's okay. You really can put words. I have not known a lawyer that could not fill a page. Like You can get words out. Just get to work. Uh, the editing is a very different discipline and is a very different mind I've found. I... I'm kind of a fan of the edit a couple of times and then give it up uh, and let other people play with it. So the process that I'm going through is I did this first draft and it was mostly me fleshing out an outline, right? It's about 36,000 words, so it's pretty robust. Uh, the, the goal, the target is some 50, 60,000 words. So me just getting my brain out is a big chunk of it. The next stage is going to be incorporating all these stories and ideas from other people. So I've got all these interviews, and I'm going to listen to them again and incorporate these things, these stories and quotes into the book. So that's the second edit. The third edit is going to be me going through and cleaning it up, right? So some of it's organizational. I use Scrivener, which is a really cool tool for reorganizing your book, and I, I could theoretically reorganize it um, and move sections around. But that's that third edit is my final cleanup. After that, I'm going to go through two more phases. So that fourth phase is going to be a professional edit. I'll hire somebody through Upwork or something that can go in and do a, what's called a copy edit, where they go through and they make sure the, the grammar, uh, or, I'm sorry, that's a line edit. Uh, we'll go through and correct the grammar. And then the final group is going to be beta readers. So if you go right now to lawyerforward.com slash book updates, you can sign up for to follow the book. I'm updating people. I'm working out loud on it and updating people on what I'm working on. So that group will have the opportunity to be beta readers and to give any other corrections or changes that they they might suggest. And then by the time I publish it, which will be in January, it uh, will have gone through my final touches, and then I just got to let it go. So you mentioned those book updates. How did you set that up? How did you get the idea to do that? Um, what's, uh, you know, what's 
what are you doing with that? Yeah, I want to give credit to someone, but I just don't know who it was that I got this from. But there's something called the blog to book strategy. That's not exactly what I'm doing, but the idea is that you you write a blog and you get ideas out and you're just using it as a way to organize your thoughts. And then eventually what you do is you take all those blog posts, you drop each individual into Scrivener and you move them around to make it a coherent uh, whole. I don't love that strategy because then it just reads like a bunch of blog posts taped together, which does not yeah. make for a very coherent book, but it's a, it's a possible strategy. And again, your first book's going to be your worst book. So if that gets you going, do a blog to book strategy. But what all those guys do, those people do who do that is they'll have a mailing list building through that time where they'll just give updates on this is the tool I'm using this week. This is my writing process. Here's an interview. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. Uh, I use a tool called Active Campaign. It's an auto emailer. And what that means, it, you've seen these, subscribe to my newsletter or whatever. And what I've set up in Active Campaign is there are three emails that as soon as you sign up, it'll send you these three split three days apart. And it tells those three core pieces of the book, the three arguments about social capital, picking your business model, and then connecting. So that's the first three emails. And then after that, I'm doing a once a week, more or less, update of hey, check out this tool I'm using, listen to this great interview, whatever it is that kind of works out loud but also helps process through the ideas. So that's kind of, you're kind of already working on marketing it. Is that, is that correct or is it more about the feedback you're getting from, from that? Uh, both. I, I don't know if I would isolate it. I, the Twitter crowd, when you think about Tim Ferriss, I don't know if you know who Tim Ferriss is or read any of his stuff, but I was talking to a lawyer about this the other day who I was trying to persuade to create a podcast uh, where he invited a bunch of experts to talk to his target audience. What Tim Ferriss does is he interviews a bunch of people. He is not an expert. Tim Ferriss is not an expert in anything. He is an author. And I make this distinction in the book between expertise and authority. Uh, for the audience-focused business, authority is what you need. You need to be an author. You need to create. Uh, you don't have to be the deep expert. So Tim Ferriss is not a deep expert. And what he does is he brings in a bunch of really smart people. And then he took all those interviews and turned them into a book called, I think it's called Tools of Titans. And it's basically, he took all that expertise and turned it into a system. That's the exercise that an access business can do is create the system, the solutions engine. And, but now all of those experts, all of those people that he interviewed are personally invested in the success of Tim and that book. So similarly for me, I have interviewed a lot of people and all of those people now, because I'm quoting them in the book, are personally invested in these ideas getting out to the world. So yes, there's a marketing function to that. In addition to working the ideas out, there is a marketing function because we all are helping each other now to get these, to promote each other, to get those ideas out. Uh, and then, you know, with the email list, it definitely is, there is a marketing function to it. I'm suspecting, expecting, hoping, uh, maybe is the right word, that this list, which is gonna be fairly small, there are not a lot of people who care about you writing your stupid book. Uh, that's that's just going to be a fact. But those people are going to be enough to put 
Amazon reviews together that will move the book up, to be beta readers that will help you make sure that your ideas are correct, to be sounding boards when you need it for the ideas that you're developing. So I would always encourage, if you're going to go through the exercise of working on a book, work out loud as much as you can and attract as many people to you as you can before you try to release it. And again, I would make that argument whether you're writing a fiction or a nonfiction book. Well, that's, uh, that's great advice. So last couple of questions mm -hmm. um, that I just want to throw out there is kind of a fun thing. Tools aren't always the most important thing, but I want to know, are, are there any uh, tools? Uh, what do you use to write? Any apps that you just like and, and right. use? So I, uh, I mentioned Scrivener, but I did not start with Scrivener. What I started with was buying an iPad and a keyboard that I had never used for anything before except for this purpose. What I do is I go to Google Drive and I make all of the things that I write available offline. And then I will go to a restaurant and sit for two hours writing while not being able to get on the Internet. So there's virtually nothing else that I can do on this iPad. And the reason I did that is because I'm so habituated on my phone or on my computer to check stuff, to do other stuff. With the iPad, I'm not habituated to do anything but write. And so I sit there and I write. Uh, I wrote it all in Google Drive. And then I moved it over to a tool I mentioned called Scrivener. Scrivener is really complicated, or at least it can be. It is a tool for writers. Generally, the way I use it is they have this cool function where you can turn each of your, depending on where you start. For me, I'm plugging my chapters in, but for you, you might have done an outline, and each section in the outline can become a visual 3x5 card. It looks like a, those little 3x5 cards on a pin board. Uh, so that's what I use it for. So whether you have a mind map and you're putting bubbles on there or an outline and you're just putting headlines on there or character profiles if you're writing fiction or scenes if you're writing fiction, whatever it is, you can put those things on these virtual cards and then you can move them around visually and that then changes the actual text. So you can reorder and reorganize and you can also see if your ideas fit on a short card. Uh, any any chapter that an argument cannot fit on a short card needs to be another chapter. Uh, so I get everything to fit on Scrivener and use that tool. So so right now, so far, uh, that's all I've used. I also have Grammarly. Uh, Grammarly doesn't work with Google Drive, but it kind of checks your grammar as you go. I try not to use it as much as I can because I'm an editor. I'm a self-editor, which is really bad when you're trying to just write. So my first draft is pretty darn finished, but that's not awesome. Like you really need to get in the habit of just writing. So I have Grammarly, but I don't use it in Google Drive specifically because it would slow me down. Yeah. Is there anything you uh, – do you have a ritual or anything you do to try and turn that editing part of your brain off when you're writing? Or is it just setting up all those tools and apps specifically just for the writing? Yeah, no, in the research that I've done for this book, uh, the short version is that habits don't happen consciously. It's because you set up systems around the habit that only allow you to do that thing, right? So uh, mm -hmm. to give an example, I have a really annoying 11-year-old, 
and I have a pair of tennis shoes and my 11 year old will nag me about going to work out and bring me tennis shoes. And so I have this exercise of, I drive, no matter what's gone on in my schedule in the day, I got worse after family vacation, but that's a different story. But no matter what's going on in my day, I put my shoes on, I grab my 11 year old, I drive to the gym. Sometimes I walk in and I get on a treadmill. Sometimes I just drive by and keep going, right? But I'm setting up systems around the habit that I want to happen, and then it will happen. So generally speaking, I, I just make myself keep going by making it really hard for me to do otherwise. So last, uh, last question, is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd like to answer? Favorite color? No, I... <laughs> favorite uh, Star Trek. Which, which, which series is your favorite? Oh my gosh, it might actually be Deep Space Nine. I went back through that show having never watched it. I was a big Next Generation kid because uh, that was my... That, I think I was like 10 or 11 or 12 or something when that show was on repeat. Uh, so I could watch that one every afternoon. And, and apparently Picard is coming back, which gets me sort of geeky excited. Uh, but I recently, I went, yeah, I recently <laughs> went and binged Deep Space Nine. And, and it was really fascinating. I, I will say, to, to make a broader point about uh, Star Trek and about science fiction and about writing your problem, I love, if I were to ever write fiction, which I've gone back and forth on, it would be science fiction. And the reason is that science fiction is a vehicle for talking about big issues. I talk in the book about the Generation Starship, and if you want to see a version of that, go watch the movie WALL-E. But in WALL-E, they're tackling big social issues and using cutesy sci-fi backgrounds to tackle it. The great thing about Star Trek is that, especially the original, coming out around the time of Vietnam and talking about the role of government and social orders, and you're tackling huge problems that you find important and using the story to convey it and get people to think about it. Similarly, as I'm writing this book, I'm just tackling a big problem and doing it in the way that I think the most lawyers will engage with it. So write your problem, right? Write your problem that you want to solve in whatever way will get you to do it every day. Don't write a nonfiction book about law practice if that's not what you want to solve. Don't write a book about 12 things to do after your auto accident if that's not the problem you want to solve. If you want to deal with bigger issues, write about that. In the end, you only need a thousand true fans to borrow from Kevin Kelly to pay you $200 a year in order for you to make $200,000 a year, which is a living wage. That's a living gross wage in just about everywhere in the United States. Get a thousand people to love you, figure out a way for them to give you $200, problem solved. You don't have to keep dealing with crap you don't want to deal with. So write what you care about, and that will be the springboard for all of the rest of that fandom-based business. Thank you for that advice, and thank you for talking with me. Thanks for helping me out with the recording. And I'm, It's been great talking to you, and I, I have so many ideas, and I'm sure we'll follow up sometime in the future to, uh, to talk more, and we'll be following along with your book. Absolutely, and again, I appreciate it. I hope that 
People will go to lawyerforward.com slash book updates if they're into that. If not, just go follow me on Twitter. I'm braining out about the same things. I'm at Mike Whalen Jr. It's W-H-E-L-A-N-J-R. So at Mike Whalen Jr., go follow me there. It's it's a fun group. And then just follow all the people I follow because they're mostly awesome. So anyway, thank you. Yeah, absolutely do that. And I'm going to put a whole bunch of links in the show notes on this to, to make sure we've got links to all the stuff we talked about. You're a good man. I think this all is... the books you, books you name dropped. I yeah. think that's there's a lot. Great. Yeah, I've been reading a lot. Well, I appreciate yeah. you and I appreciate this work. I think this is going to be a, a fun thing. So uh, get lawyers to write more. I'm amazed at how little they want to go get them to do it. Okay, we'll, we'll work on that. Thanks, Mike.